some good rock and roll coming up for you now. The guys from Kiss have arrived. They snuck in the back door. You spend your whole life doing the first few albums, and then suddenly everybody needs their attention. Erica M. The invention of the VJ. A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode. How you doing? My name is Bill Lewiska, and he is a true groundbreaker. Check it out. His name is Prince. It was the first time we actually had a live interview. We talk live interviews for Prince. I know I'm by myself, but I'm Max Files collection, and my dog Marty loves me, right? Well, maybe not. This is Erica M's reinvention of the VJ. Now, here's Erica M. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reinvention of the VJ. I'm Erica M. And today, I'll be chatting with the VJ who got his start behind the scenes at Much as an editor. He became the host of the weekly country music show on Much called Outlaws and Heroes, and he ended up being one of the longest standing VJs on Much. I am so happy to reconnect with my buddy Bill Wilichka on today's show. But... Before we jump into our interview, if this is your first time tuning into my podcast, let me give you a little bit of background. Reinvention of the VJ podcast is my passion project. It's my weekly unscripted and hopefully meandering conversation with some of the quirky and beloved on-air hosts that you probably grew up watching on Much. Now, I was only at Much for the first decade, so many of my guests on the show I may not have even worked with. But there is one thing that we all have in common. Each of us played a small part in our country's most influential pop culture platform. And then eventually each of us left at different times for different reasons, each on our own next adventure. And it's that story of what happens after much, the reinvention, the resilience and the innovation, the luck and the struggle that also intrigues me. So hopefully after Bill and I chat, you'll feel like you know him a little better and maybe you'll even see him differently because listen, really the show is for you. And hopefully while listening to Bill today, you're going to find some tidbits, some insight that, that helps you sort of get through some tough times and to reinvent and even redefine success so that you can apply it to your own life. And listen, right after I finish my interview with Bill, I'm going to be sharing a phone line that we set up. We are so fancy. Um, it's a re-invention of the VJ phone line. So you can call in and tell us which, hold on, my dog is making noise. Snoop, be quiet. We're doing a podcast. Let the dog stay in. I'm going to let him stay in. <laughs> but I want to tell everyone about, uh, wait a second, Bill, you're not supposed to be talking yet. This is my show. All these VJs are just so pushy. What's going to happen is I'm going to give you a phone number that you can call in and then you can tell us which much VJ I should interview next. And you can also offer up questions. You can reminisce about an interview or something about much that really means a lot to you. And you can give us feedback on the show, which is really important because how will the show get better if we don't hear from you? To be honest, as much as this show is for you, it's also a treat for me to reconnect and reminisce with people that I haven't seen in years, which brings me to today's guest. I met Bill Wilichka in probably 1988 when he was behind the scenes at Much doing his job as an editor. And we ended up working together until 1994 when poof, we barely have spoken since. 
So Bill, I am so happy to have you on my show. Look at you smiling. <laughs> I think I might cry a little bit. Well, we're, we're doing this interview on, on uh, Zoom, so we get to actually look at each other, although in a podcast that you don't get to see the smile. But it is, there is something, there is like this weird connection, isn't there, between all of us who worked at Much back in the day. I've been asked before if, um, you know, if any of the VJs ever hung out after their shift. First of all, thanks for uh, thinking of me for this, by the way. It means a lot. Uh, I have a feeling it's going to feel like therapy, a big, long therapy session as well. But it is good to see you as well. So thanks for thinking of me uh, after all these years. But, yeah, I've been asked before, hey, did any of you guys ever hang out? And for me, sadly, not really. Um, Only at work. I've remained in touch with a lot of behind-the-scenes people. And uh, I think you might have as well. I think you were you remain friends with uh, a, a, a certain few as well. But I wish we had remained in touch over the years. And thank goodness for social media. Yeah, I know it's true. We lurk, don't we? Yeah. Look where people are through social media. Oh, that's so nice. So where are you speaking from right now? Uh, I am in Kingston at the uh, global affiliate here. I'm actually on the news desk. Um, I host a morning show here and uh, moved to Kingston eight years ago to uh, produce and host an hour broadcast, which we went to full global about three years ago. We created a morning show, so I've been producing and uh, co-hosting that. That's so camera. awesome, Bill. Congratulations. And I, lo- I love Kingston for more reasons than one. Of course, when you're a VJ, you love music and you manage to connect with a lot of your heroes. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years is uh, always been a big Tragically Hip fan, interviewed them maybe 20 times over the years since 1995 and have had established friendships with them over the years and to actually be neighbors with Rob Baker to consider Paul Angwa, you know, somewhat of a friend and his wife, Joe, to have Johnny Faye buy you a beer when he sees you at the bar, you know, just these little things. Uh, so are you Sinclair. telling me that you accepted a job in Kingston specifically to hang out with the Tragically Hip? <laughs> no, it's just, it's just one of the reasons why I love Kingston. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of many reasons. Prior well, to Kingston, I was in Ottawa. So that brings you up to date. That's what life has been like since being a VJ. So it all started at Sheridan. You were studying uh, radio and television. Did you have an eye on being on air back in the day? No inkling, inkling of wanting to be on air. Uh, I tell people I really wanted to learn how to shoot. I really wanted to be a camera person, but fell in love with editing uh, to the point where I ended up editing everyone's assignments for them. Ended up being nominated and winning most outstanding student, not because of, based on marks, but because I did it, I ended up editing everyone's projects. And then got hired the week I uh, graduated from Seneca. I got hired by Much as a, as a dubber and then became an editor. Uh, you remember in 1988, Music Plus was getting ready for their move to Montreal, Music Plus. Uh, the shift was Much went live from 12 to 8. Music Plus would take over from 8 until midnight right. and then recycle that window. So I was basically dubbing all of music, all of our library's videos for Music Plus so they can have their videos when they move to Montreal. So my first job was basically pressing play, record. Were you an intern at that point? Uh, yeah, uh, an intern and then getting hired wh- when I graduated. So it just- so it, wait, When you're an intern, does that mean you work for free? I look at it as free information, as free education. But the cool thing is, is and this is what I tell volunteers, once you're in, you keep your eye on the notice boards, you 
find out where there's movement going on. So uh, it's an, it was an advantage to be there volunteering. And then when an opening came up as an editor, I jumped at it. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I was going to ask you about that. It seems that you are a master opportunist, that you are always on the lookout for potential opportunities. And don't give me this look like, oh, you're insulting me. I'm not. I think that in order to succeed in life, you need to be an opportunist. I, uh, opportunist implies out for yourself. I disagree with that. To me, an opportunist is someone who's constantly looking for mutually beneficial opportunities where there's a place for you where you can help out. It's a different way of looking at life. And you seem to be like that. Uh, I think that that is fair to say. Um, I like to think most people are. And uh, when you say helping people out, that's really all I've really wanted to do, whether it's been on the air or whether it's been behind the scenes whether it's uh, endearing yourself to a community that you've never lived in before, whether it's working with a bunch of people you've never worked with before, uh, helping and assisting and elevating people around you. And mm -hmm. all the while, you're elevating yourself, hopefully. And uh, it's been such a cliche. We're all in this together, especially in 2020. I've said that from day one years ago. We're all in this together. Well, I agree with that. And I think part of your success is that you're a nice guy. I've heard that before. My response is, it's not hard. Okay, let's go back to the editing bay. I have very strong, you're looking, you're wagging your finger at me. I have very strong memories of hanging out with you in the editing bay. I have a funny story. It was late at night. Uh, I don't know, sometime in 88, maybe 89. I was editing something that you had worked on. And I was working nights, so I rarely cross paths with the VJs and with you. Uh, you were going out with some guy, uh, some artist guy. Oh, Doug. Is that his name? So talented. Yeah. I was editing something and you popped in the edit bay to stick your head in. You said, oh, uh, I'm Erica. I know, I know who you are. And you said, well, can I see what you're doing? I was smoking at the time. And that's when you could smoke in public places, especially a TV station. And I was smoking in the edit bay, I remember. And you said, oh, can I see what you're working on that piece? And I go, yeah, it's almost done. Uh, do you mind? I'm smoking. Is that okay? And you went, yeah, it's okay. It's gross. So you allowed me to smoke, but you let me know that you didn't like it at all. <laughs> I just thought, I love this honesty. Good honesty there. I think that's part of who I am is I'm the blunt one. I, I just am. I'm, I'm unabashedly myself. And I think that when those who were successful on Much Music had to be the same, because at least for me, there was no script. We were basically put on air and chosen because we had something to say. Which brings me to you sitting in the edit bay and watching hundreds of hours of interviews and learning all the time, mm. taking it in. Mm. Did you decide that you wanted to be on air when you were looking at all these amateurs like me and going, man, I can do so much better just because you've seen so much. Um, not really, because the people I were watching were seasoned freaking pros. Uh, you, Christopher Ward, Denise Donlan. I had some great teachers. They didn't know they were teaching me at the time. And when your job is to watch hours and hours of raw interviews, of course you pick stuff up. What works, what doesn't work. One of the things you inadvertently taught me without knowing is... Um, an interview is not a question and answer. It's not an interrogation. It's a conversation. 
and you might go in with two or three questions that you really want to know or that the fans want to know, but it can go this way. It can go this way all because you're listening and engaging and reacting. And to me, the best interviews were always conversations where the artists didn't even know they were being interviewed. They're just giving you stuff. And inside you're going, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's good. And as an editor, I'm editing an hour special in my head as I'm going along going, okay, I could use that there. Okay. Yeah. I can put that. Oh, a video clip would be good there all the while having a conversation. So yeah, I had really good teachers. I was very, very fortunate that way, but didn't want to be on air. That was with the country show when I was really passionate about country music at the time and helped create that show. Outlaws and heroes. Some guy last week, Erica, you'll get this for the rest of your life. I used to say when I'm 50, I'm still going to get it. I say now when I'm 60 or 70, Hey, much music. Hey, Bill. Some guy actually said, Hey, outlaws and heroes. Wow. That was 1994. That show went off the air. But uh, yeah, uh, I was a huge country fan at the time, still am, but we had all these country music videos coming into the station and no real avenue to play them. And John Martin, our director of music programming at that time, thought, like I did, let's put a country show on the air. It was Canada's first country music video. Wait a second, you said to John, let's put a country show on the air? I submitted a proposal. Out of the blue. He didn't so wait know a second. You, he didn't know me from a hole in the ground. Right. So you're like, you're, you're, you know, in quotation marks, just an editor. How old were you at the time? Probably 20. And you had the audacity to put together a proposal for a TV series for a national music network. I've made a career out of questioning every single one of my moves and how I do it, but not necessarily why I do things. Does that make sense? Well, it has to make sense because that's what you do. But, you know, and John Martin uh, ended up putting one on the air. Christopher Ward and Denise Donnelly, Denise Donnelly hosted. Uh, I just wanted to be along for the ride editing. How did you frame this this show that made him want to do it? It was a letter that I sent and I only work nights, so I never saw him during the day. I wrote him a letter and said, hi, I'm Bill. I work nights. I'm a big country fan. Every week we're getting in these country music. Watch them on the new music. I think it's time we jump on this uh, huge um, chart-making, money-selling venture in terms of country music. So I think one ended up going on the air in a couple of months. But, uh, you know, I'm also smart enough to not say I, he, I stole my idea. I'm sure he had that idea for a while. Yes, Bill, good one. Good and we've, one. we've lost John Martin. We lost John Martin in 2005 or 2006, one of the smartest guys I think I've ever met. So when you went on air was that you asking to be on air like how did that happen that the guy who worked nights as an editor who came up with the show is still sitting smoking in his edit bay (laughs) how is it that you eventually quite quickly actually became the host Denise Donlin was the original host she went on mad leave went away on mad leave so she actually said you know while I'm gone why don't you host the show for me from the edit bay here's this editor taking care of the show while the host is gone. I thought, okay. Uh, I did that for uh, close to a year, I think. And then when she came back, uh, we continued to co-host. And then she soon became the director of music programming, took over John's role, and basically left me to host the show. And uh, by that point, I think the viewers were familiar with me and uh, did that until they canceled the Outlaws and Heroes, the country music video show where she moved me to regular flow VJing. So I was gone by that point. I Sadly, left yes. in 94, which is right 
probably when, in a way, you might have replaced my time on, on air at much because I left in 94. You filled another spot. How, like, it's an interesting thing. I think when, when Moses Snymer, who mm. hires people for on air, when, when they were hiring people, they sort of slotted people in and sort of defined their personalities in a way. Do you know what I mean? So what role did you play at Absolutely. Much? And looking back, you know, you don't really say, well, I, I'm this guy. I have this to offer because you don't really know. You know, I was never the cute one. I was never the political one. Uh, hopefully people just saw a fan who loved music, loved all kinds of music, knew about all kinds of music and could uh, was passionate about interviews and giving the artist a chance to shine. And that's all I think I've ever done and still continue to do but Moses yeah you're right uh he stopped me in the hallway one time and said your nose is to the camera I don't like that I thought well what everyone's nose is to the camera they're talking to a camera Moses speaks in codes he doesn't give you stuff man is brilliant I still tell people to this day one of the most uh, groundbreaking ahead of his time uh broadcasters in the world nothing but respect for Moses but I had to sit and think about what he meant and what he meant was well if I'm an editor do the show from the edit bay and then I started to develop doing an interview and then in the edit bay, stopping the interview halfway through so the viewer could see the pause tape and then rewinding and then saying, yeah, but if you said that then, then uh, how do you feel about this video now? Play a little bit of the video. So basically editing the show as I went on. And uh, it's never been done before in television. And that's a testament to Moses. Yeah. And it's also a testament to not just you, but to the people that Moses has hired because he demanded innovation from each of us. And I think that those who couldn't cut it um, fell away. And it, it forced all of us, I think, to challenge ourselves in ways we never thought we could. And ways that no one else ever had to in any other market or any other station. That's what was one of the beautiful things about 299 Queen, and you were at 99 Queen East, is that that sense of creativity and love of music and to combine both those things and doing it with some great people. Uh, Morgan Flurry, Sherry Greengrass, Simon Evans, Denno, some amazing behind-the-scenes people as well that also had this vision. And everyone worked on their visions together. And I think the audience knew what they were watching in that you would never see this anywhere else in the world. It was like a family. And when it comes to family, there are disagreements. At least <laughs> for me, there were. How did you deal with the constant stress? There is pressure. You can go ahead and not deny it. But to be live every day for four hours with virtually no script and chaos all around you how did you cope with the daily pressure? I honestly, you'll disagree, maybe. I didn't really feel pressure. I, I looked at everything as an opportunity and as knowing what I was doing. I knew day one I was being given an opportunity that would change my life. And, uh, and I appreciated that. To this day, I still appreciate it. And to this day, I still tell people, those are, those are days I'll never get back. Go to Switzerland, spend a few days in Switzerland or LA or New York or Australia, England, uh, interview Cheryl Crow, interview Shania Twain, interview uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, uh, interview Robert Smith, 
interview someone that you grew up loving and appreciating and had pictures on your locker, interview David Bowie, interview Mick Jagger. You go do an interview and you come back and I'm editing an hour special with these artists. I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it. I'm sure you look at it and as those days can never, ever be replicated or repeated. I also feel that it... it, You in uh, Switzerland with Glass Tiger. And Tina Turner in Switzerland. I I have all those interviews at home and I I watch all of them. You have them? (laughs) No, I wish I I did. I don't have any of them. You know, this is something that's so weird is that when I was working at Much, I was there for 13 years three years before we went on air, and then 10 years on air. Erica in those early days was a receptionist. That's right. Well, no, I I was booking the shoots for Jeannie and JD for the new music and for much music. I was even there way before there wasn't much music. But for me, when I was there, I didn't collect any video because I, I never thought it would end. And now I have some photos, but I find my old interviews on YouTube. I'm guessing you must have quite a collection at home because you know how to edit. So you freaking were able to pull the tapes and keep copies at home. Um, I have a lot of, I have our specials that I worked on with the artists that I absolutely love. I did save those, uh, you know, maybe uh, 15 or 20 of those. At the end of each year, we would do a best of the year. So I have best of shows. So, for instance, we just lost Eddie Van Halen, and, uh, and I interviewed Eddie twice, both with the band, once at his house in West Hollywood, once live on Much. I don't have those, but what I have is like maybe 30 seconds to a minute from that year mm. in the year-end wrap-ups. So, but yeah, there's oftentimes where I wish, oh, I wish I had that special or that interview. And uh, I've heard from some people that a lot of those interviews have been turfed and never heard from again, mm. which is really sad because... Like, Iggy Pop interviews from the late 70s on the new music. Priceless. You're not even going to find that on YouTube. But luckily, yeah, there's a lot of people that have saved stuff that they watched and have thrown it up on YouTube. And I, I've seen stuff that I, I'd forgotten about, which is amazing. So, uh, yeah, it's not until someone brings it up to you or it's out on YouTube now that you can relive some of those moments. But, yeah, you, you especially. Some groundbreaking interviews. Uh, Peter Gabriel. Love that. Live on Much. Yeah. That was the first time John Martin, I remember this, Peter Gabriel was live on Much. I think it was like 2.30 in the afternoon, just for like a half hour, I think it was. He played some music videos. He came back, talked to Peter Gabriel. And uh, John Martin said, this is the first time we've ever done this. Says, that was great. Let's repeat it in the evening. Let's repeat it tomorrow. It was the first time we actually had a live interviews. We took live interviews for granted. You know what I mean? It's interesting that you say that because I have probably some PTSD trauma from my days at much because I started with zero skills. I was considered, yes, now historically a trailblazer, but back then people did not like my style. I was learning on the job. I didn't have what you had, which are role models, really. I had no one to copy. I was making it up. But I wonder, did you have a difficult time transitioning from being the guy behind the scenes to the guy on camera internally, like from the crew to go, how come he gets to be on air? Like, did you did you get that sort of frustration from the crew that um, you shouldn't be on air? I didn't experience that. And if 
they did feel that. <laughs> Thankfully, they've never expressed to me because I would have started crying or something. But uh, I always, I always got along great with the crews because we worked with the crews. As an editor, you work with the crews, so you know everyone. And uh, like I said earlier, I, you know, I still keep in touch with behind-the-scenes people more than I do with the on-air people. One of the things that really freaked me out is when I was doing the country show and they brought it to an end, and J- Denise wanted me to move over to regular flow VJs. I think that second day. I had to interview, oh, it was a Manchester band, Stone Roses, huge Manchester band. And I thought, okay, uh, if anyone watches much at all, if they flip around, wait, isn't that the country guy who for two years went on about how much he loves Garth Brooks and Michelle Wright and Marty Stewart? Now he's interviewing the Stone Roses. I'm not going to buy that. But hopefully by those interviews, people watched and realized, okay, this guy isn't a one-trick pony. He, he knows about country, yeah, but he knows about classic rock he knows about modern rock he knows some hip-hop he knows a little bit of everything and i think uh that was tough for me to swallow realizing Mm. if the audience was going to get it is there an interview that you conducted over your years at much that transformed the way you think that affected you really deeply sort of philosophically or emotionally Depending on the artist, you learn something new every time. But one of the things for me is when it really, really hit me, it's happened a couple times. It's happened a lot of times. But the first few times, it really hits you. And that is, I remember listening to my older brother's records in grade one and grade two and David Bowie and Rod Stewart and Led Zeppelin and having a chance to, and, you know, I love Bob Seger in high school, grade nine and grade 10, huge ball. I think I went through Night Moves, three different copies uh, album, tape, and eventually CD. And uh, The Cure will always be uh, one of my favorite groups of all time. And then in the middle of an hour interview, and it's going good. It's going really well. And uh, in fact, there's bonding going on. And you'll notice, you know this, the artist actually knows that you know what you're talking about because you're bringing up stuff that's not in the bio that they've never said before. And to themselves, they're thinking, okay, this person knows what they're talking about this person me therefore i'm gonna respect them kind of thing but it happened with robert smith and like i said a few others where it hit me it's like man this this is uh this is a perfect circle this was the uh, music that i went to bed to music was a badge when i was growing up i'm sure it was for you but when you go to a bed to an artist's music and you go to sleep and you wake up to that music it, it's part of your life in a way that friends can't be or family members can't be but when you bond with an artist who, you know, has been in that situation for you and music, yeah, it's not just entertainment. I believe music, it, it touches the soul. It can save people. And uh, to bond with these people years later to me is a, a huge thrill that uh, you couldn't pay me enough to experience that. Or I couldn't pay enough to experience that. Yet I was getting paid to do all this. Yeah, I think most Canadians would have died to have been in your situation. Um, And then things changed and you ended up on much more music, which was romantic rock. What the heck was that all about, Bill? I got to the point where I was turning 30 and I thought, you know, I don't want to be sporty spice for another spice. I love producing and editing our specials with much more music. uh, It was more about the music. It wasn't about the presentation of it as much. So I asked Denise, when she launched much more music, I think I can go over upstairs, a couple floors up. And uh, she says, well, what shows would you introduce and create? 
So I told her and uh, I ended up doing much more music. And uh, by then the programming had shifted a little bit. They were allowing a little bit more edgier music, more of a, of a, ref, a reflection of VH1, which is, it started off as singer songwriter music and then it morphed into something else. I think the producers at the time were just didn't know really how to present a triple M format. And then eventually they figured it out. But like anything in that building, under chum it just sort of petered out sadly and so what happened like you were at much you were there for how many years like 14 years altogether how many years 88 to 2000 with much and then much more from 2000 to 2005 i was just done with entertainment i remember doing a bowie special amazing uh david bowie interview and the director of music programming at the time said is he going to get ratings I think I'm done here. I don't want to do this anymore. So did you walk away? You walked away from this dream job or did they package you? Like what happened? Oh no, I found another job and then gave them some notice. Ah, Bill, ever the opportunist. This is fascinating as I get to know you. You bring up reinvention. I was scared shitless. Okay, all I've ever known is television, yes, but all I've ever known is entertainment and music television. An opportunity came to go to Edmonton to host a morning show. I thought, okay, well, that's not going to be so different. It's talking. It's being current. It's engaging the audience. It's live. I love live. live. Um, But then realized at that point that I just missed Ontario. Nothing against Edmonton. Uh, I just, I missed friends and family. I didn't, I thought I could handle it and I didn't. But at the end of that year, um, serendipitous opportunity came to be a weather person in Ottawa for... Okay, stop right now. First of all, serendipitous. That implies luck. So tell me the truth. Was it luck or did you cast a net? Did you open yourself up to more opportunity? What happened? I had heard from a director of music, uh, from the director of news operations in Ottawa that they were looking for a personality. Ah, And there he is. He heard that I wanted to leave Edmonton. I don't know. Managers talk, I guess. Bill, everybody talks. Isn't that isn't that sort of the secret of networking, of keeping everyone that you've worked with close so that your tentacles spread and the opportunities uh, multiply? You can call it luck. You can call it um, where I was supposed to be, where fate wanted me. I don't know. Uh, I'm grateful for that opportunity. Okay, but Bill, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm I'm, I'm stopping you right here. A weatherman? Talk about reinvention. And, I mean, there's university or college programs where you learn to be. Oh, meteorologist. Yeah. I tell people I'm I'm not a meteorologist. I'm a weather presenter. Um, One is a degree. One is uh, basically giving the highs and lows, explaining why a system is moving in. And um, I basically read a book and before I started there and uh, learned on the job and uh, loved it. And you talk about reinvention. Uh, Again, it's about shitting pants and it's about overcoming. (laughs) It's about shitting pants. (laughs) And uh, realizing, okay, this is a challenge. I can do it. I'm up for it. And then realizing years later, I love it. So now I get to do a little bit of everything. It's almost full circle. I can pick and choose artists that are coming to Kingston uh i can pick and choose any concerts uh if there's any interview opportunity with uh, music artists so i still do that i do the weather and i do lifestyle programming and it's a little bit of everything 
So uh, anything that happened in my life up to now has paved me, has paved the way for me to do from here on in, if that makes any sense. You have accomplished so much in your life. How does it reflect in your private life? Because the minute you go on air and you become open to people having a perception of you, how did that affect or does affect your personal life? When you meet people, can they see you who's not the guy on air? Like, how does that work? I think one of the greatest compliments I've ever received is, uh, you know, Erica M. Being told that I'm part of people's families at the six o'clock dinner hour. And I've been told that, you know, you're just, you bring something that is honest and approachable, which again, I don't know any other way. And I don't know what, who you've been watching where they're not honest and not approachable, but uh, (laughs) thank you, I guess. It's a huge compliment. Yes. And I think that that may, you know, I'm always interested to to, um, see the connection between what, who we were at much and how we were trained and how that thread may or may not stay consistent throughout our lives. And so I ask you, were you at much encouraged to stay Bill or did they try and soften the edges a little bit or make you a little more professional? And how is that consistent with where you are today? I've been lucky recently. I've been lucky back there. No one has ever uh, said, wear this, don't do that, say this. Even recently, uh, Jay, my you know boss, he's the director of news here in Kingston, uh, I've been given a lot of freedom uh, to the point where sometimes he might have said, you know, Bill, showing your picture at the Gore Downey Pier on the weekend maybe wasn't a good idea on the morning show, but... Uh, you know, <laughs> didn't get in trouble. But yeah, I was at the Gore Downey Pier on the weekend swimming. Here, here's my bare chest. You have had and are having a really wonderful career. Well, thank you. Proudest moment to date, Bill. I'm sure as an on-air person, you've been asked many, many, many questions and have been interviewed as well as doing interviewing. Uh, no one's ever asked that before. So I would like to think the proudest moment and you know, it's like being asked, oh, who was your favorite interview? Oh, Robert Smith. I love the guys from Oasis. Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, Led Zeppelin. Well, what about Madonna? Talk about Madonna. Yeah, that was good. But, you know. No, I want to know for you. So I don't for me, the proudest. Because that's, that's, that's outside. But I want to know for you. The proudest what moment. What has been the proudest moment in your career to date? Okay, I can think of two things. One is being hired by much full-time with a salary the week I graduated. Huge. I'll never forget that feeling. Uh, And number two, still being able to continue to do what I have chosen in my life to do, doing it and still doing it and continuing to doing it, continue to still do it and uh, continue to uh, reinvent myself. Bill? You mentioned the word luck before, and I'm going to disagree with you because listening to you, what I hear is someone who is incredibly hardworking, who's easy to get along, who is uh, an an opportunist at every turn, and I mean that in my definition, and you are 
appreciative of and grateful for what you have. And um, I think that these are great lessons for uh, anyone listening right now, because if you are looking to uh, change careers or enhance your career, do what Bill does, okay? Um, thanks again, Bill, so much. Uh, for those of you who have been listening, remember that you are such an important part of the show because without you, there would be no show. So as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I've set up a phone line for you to call in to leave a voice message so that we can include you in future episodes. The number is 833-972-7272. I'm going to repeat the number in a few seconds, but here's a question. Why should you call in? Well, you can call in to suggest who I should interview on a future episode of Reinvention of the VJ after Bill Walichka. Um, or you can also share some stories about really any of us, any of the on-air people that you have watched over the years. Maybe you met one of the on-air people in real life or Perhaps you remember a specific much segment that made you laugh, made you cry, that meant a lot to you. Or you may have a burning question that you'd like me to ask a future guest who would answer it on one of the shows. So you can also share feedback um, about this episode or any episode of Reinvention of the VJ. The number once again, to call is 833-972-7272. And if you're not a phone type of person, or if you don't want to have your voice included in the show, you can always reach me on my social platforms on Instagram, Erica M. On Twitter, it's Erica M. On my Facebook page, guess what? It's Erica M. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Bill Walichka, for being a part of the show. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week with another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. Here's to living a life filled with music, meaning, and many reinventions. Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Podcast produced in collaboration with Steve Anthony Productions. Editing and coordination of Flalo Communications, Inc. Copyright 2020. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.